Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Nathan Moore, and this is the inaugural episode of the new podcast format of Soundboard, airing each Saturday morning at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM, and also podcasting as part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and and follow what's going on in, in your community and also in the state of Virginia. Uh, later in the show, we're going to hear from Peter Glasgow, longtime journalist in the Richmond area. Uh, but right now, we're going to start off today talking about local news and a really big piece over at Charlottesville Tomorrow. And I'm joined here in the studio by Giles Morse, who's the executive director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Elliot Robinson, the news editor over at Charlottesville Tomorrow. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for coming to the studio. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you, Nathan, for, thanks having, for having us. us. So there's a, a really big piece, it's kind of a, a magnum opus of local journalism here about uh, Friendship Court, uh, called The Reimagining of Friendship Court. Um, let's start off with what this is about. What's the reimagining? What's the piece? How'd you approach it? Yeah, well, um, conversations about redeveloping Friendship Court have been going on in the city for a decade. And I think I first uh, became aware of the process in 2020. 2012, soon after arriving in Charlottesville, um, it was one of the frontline topics um, vis-a-vis the discussion of gentrification, displacement, and the integrity of historically African-American neighborhoods in town. So it was clear at that point that it was one of the front lines of some of the emerging equity conversations in town. But the landscape in news and in the community was very different then. Um, you know, now, today, the focus on equity and conversations of racial justice, our history, um, and how the community is going to move forward are the focal point of community conversations, of governmental conversations, of policy conversations. And with that backdrop, uh, Friendship Court um, runs into essentially its make-or-break year where um, – Um, because of the structure of funding, federal tax credits, financing, um, it has to move a plan forward or else um, the model uh, which even that partnership of ownership is based would fall apart. So that was clear then as well that 2018-19 was going to be that moment, but things have changed so much and so is the project. And so we wanted to take a very close look at a very important land use and community design subject, um, um, literally and specifically and exhaustively, but also connect it to some of the larger themes um, around the community and around the nation around affordable housing, neighborhood identity, um, race and equity, um, uh, economic justice. um, And this story just affords such an incredible lens on that because the intersection of issues affecting the project and the residents and all the people involved kind of represent almost all of the main issues we would talk about um, with respect to to equity conversations in Charlottesville. And your specificity really does run quite deep in this. I mean, your your timeline of Friendship Court going back more than 100 years is like a deep map of this place, you know. And, and the conversations today and the big guiding questions that you've got on here, you've got five of them, you know, from what's the plan to how do we get here to how does mixed income housing work to, of course, you know, what's next. Um, take me through a little bit of the content of, of the specifics of this. Well, first off, I want to say that the story is really a collaboration. Um, and Charlottesville Tomorrow and our editorial team 
led by Elliot, um, um, played an important role, but the work, the journalistic work, is by and large um, Jordi Yeager's, um, who's a freelance journalist in town, a native, someone who's written extensively about these issues and has an incredible uh, credi- credibility with the source network locally. So, um, so, so Jordi's work, um, once we agreed to do this project back in August, I think, is when we first conceptualized it, was to really think about exhaustively interviewing everyone involved in the story and trying to then organize the subject and themes in the story after we did that, um, knowing that it's about a project and whether it gets financed and a plan and whether it, it, whether it uh, goes through. But um, So the work is really about then organizing these very extensive interviews with over 20 people some of whom spoke for, you know, close to an hour um, and not hiding what they said, presenting all of what they said, but organizing them into one conversation that someone can experience and make sense of. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, um, you know, we, our, our, our co- colleague Adriana Gallardo at ProPublica, your friend, uh, her engagement journalism model, um, this idea that where these issues of equity and power are in play, um, you really have to exhaust the conversation by hearing everyone's perspective and then bring back the, bring the point of the story back to the policy conversation, not the other way around, you know, not say, oh, these are the three policy options. Let's map that onto people we know represent what we think their views are, right? It's more wow, what does this mean for you? Um, And what do you see the solutions and goals and assumptions of a project like this as? And then how is that going to inform this larger discussion? Let me, I want to return to that. Uh, Right now, though, I want to talk with Elliot some about about the specificity of of this project and the story and and, uh, what you all found in your investigation of Friendship Court and its future and how that lines up with council priorities. What's What's happening right now in the city conversations around Friendship Court? Well, right now we're into our budget season. We just had a workshop with the city council on Friday morning. A few days ago this week, there was a presentation of the capital improvement plan at the planning commission level. And in that, it mentioned the housing projects that are coming up in that proposal. One thing that the city is doing, it, there is a plan to effectively gut the Charlottesville Affordable Housing Fund and shift some of that money into Friendship Court. There's an allocation of about $1.5 million for infrastructure improvements at the site, and then $4.4 million for Phase 1, and that's coming together as a way to make their presentation for low-income housing tax credits look more robust because it has the localities backing that, yes, this is something that we want to do. And the story shows that part of the reason that the city wants to do this is that, in a way, it is righting a wrong that had been made when the Scarrett Street neighborhood was completely bulldozed. And a lot of the people who lived there had absolutely no say in the matter. Mm -hmm. 
So a moment ago, Giles said that uh, uh, 2019, 2018, and 2019 are kind of a make or break year for Friendship Court. What, you know, why is that, and what does make look like? What's break look like? Make look like uh, everything goes well. They get their tax credits. They have their plans in place. They can start putting the shovels in the ground fairly soon. Break is there's still some uncertainty in Washington about the tax credits. For example, the amount of money they would get has been reduced under the current administration that could possibly even go away in the worst case scenario and then they would have to find another source of funding from outside agencies or benefactors to move this project forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the goal for it is is you know it's, it's safe and affordable housing for people who all live here correct yeah how much is this story a representation of really the the national conversations as a whole I think it could be seen that way, um, and yet I think my desire is that there has been such a great amount of national coverage contextualizing Charlottesville in national discussions and issues about race and equity, and what I was hoping this story would do would kind of turn that upside down and use a local conversation about what our community is doing and planning and how it's going to move an important project forward and hopefully cover it in such a way that it would inform the national conversation. Um, And because no one's figured this stuff out well, and particularly themes about community engagement, resident engagement in subsidized housing areas, um, and the power dynamics that go into them. I think it takes a new, different kind of journalistic model that kind of unifies an intense respect for the specificity of these conversations with some kind of breadcrumbs down the paths of national themes and forces that are universal across our country right now, but not to let those color or cloud or confuse what are neighborhood conversations that have real live human beings with their lives at stake? Mm-hmm. Giles, I want to uh, talk about the, the role of your journalism and, and really journalism as a whole, but kind of what you're doing with this more enterprise journalism model um, in civil society. What are, we, what are we trying to accomplish here? You know, having worked in for-profit media um, and in Charlottesville and tried to deal with some of these issues um, from that position. And then coming back in as the executive director of a nonprofit, I mean, I think we very much as a nonprofit have the responsibility to try to change models because we aren't under the same um, brutal pressure of the um, for-profit media, print media, economic model that is you know, made it so that editorial teams haven't grown in 20 years. Most reporters never have the chance to deal with even one story um, this exhaustively over a period of months anymore, Um, particularly at local print daily papers of record. I mean, it would be almost offensive to suggest that they should, given the workload that the reporters and editors um, take on. So 
for us, if we're going to add value to the community and we're going to make a case to the community that we're adding value, I think we have to, we have to um, set the bar higher, but also take on projects that other people can't, not because they don't want to or they couldn't, but because their business model, their workflows, their directives won't allow them to. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really perfect example where it's not that people aren't writing about Friendship Court. They haven't been. I mean, people are, right? But if you just follow the record of the policy conversation, it's not going to get you to a reality. And if you don't really listen to the residents firsthand, um, you won't kind of develop an understanding of the place. Um, if the history, 150 years, isn't organized in a pretty succinct way, how are most residents in town going to even have that context when they hear friendship courts asking for $4 million from the city, right? Mm -hmm. And so we just didn't want people to be tracking a policy conversation, hear a big kind of price tag, and feel um, uh, and, and jump to some conclusions about this. I think also um, Friendship Court and its redevelopment pro process, its um, leadership under Sunshine Mathon, its resident engagement process, has pretty universally by pl planners and nonprofit folks been considered an ideal type of process to undertake mixed income redevelopment of subsidized housing, which is one of the models being touted nationally as a way forward towards integration, towards economic justice, towards social mobility. But that model has also um, been questioned by community organizations, by activists by community organizers, um, and specifically in this story, challenged very aggressively by Mayor Walker, who really is questioning the basic assumptions of this type of redevelopment. Um, and, you know, those perspectives are really important, and people need to hear both sides, all sides. I hate saying both sides. There should be 18 sides. You know, how do you say that? Well, what's the... What, what type of octagon has 18 sides? I don't know. <laughs> so, but I'm saying to, to get past this idea that these are kind of these binaries, you can go this way or that way. Mm -hmm. No. It's our community. It's our tax money. It's our city. These are our neighbors, our neighborhoods. We want it to be something that reflects the values of the community, but particularly we want it to be something that reflects the voice of the residents and their goals and aims. And, um, and so I think just, you know, this engagement model where you spend months and months really going back and forth with a community, having identified that they are the people you are serving first, but you're facilitating the way their story gets told to a larger and broader public so that that public can weigh in with the elected officials in the appropriate manner. Um, I think that, that has some legs for Charlottesville going forward because we have a lot of work to do. Um, with respect to our equity issues, if it's disproportionate contact or the achievement gap in the schools or, um, you know, affordable housing, gentrification, displacement. I mean, all of these things, none of these things are the result of some bad person somewhere abusing their power, right? They're the result of um, um, misguided goals or misaligned priorities or poor information or um, uh, inertia from bad systems past that have never been redone, right? So, the way forward in those conversations is to really instigate these large community conversations and facilitate them. We feel like at Charlottesville Tomorrow, that's really our role. 
like it's what our mission says we're supposed to do, connect citizens to their government by informing them. Um, it's where nonprofit journalism models are going when they're not focused on watchdog uh, uh, reporting. Um, and it's where we have the time and space and resources to take on really complicated topics and try to make them simpler but not oversimplify them for the larger public. Still bring in the uh, the, the dodecahedron of perspectives <laughs> while, while uh, uh, really centering these conversations around equity and power. And I think that's a tremendous editorial um, uh, decision and, and it, it, frankly, a tremendous accomplishment at the website right now, charlottesvilletomorrow.org. Uh, anything else you want to add? Going back to the equity conversations, that one thing that appears in the story is that it was an issue of trust that historically these people have been marginalized and because, in part because this city has the transient population because of the influence of the University of Virginia, it's easy to come into this and think that this is how things always were or that there isn't exactly a problem here, but there was an intact neighborhood. There was poll taxes and other barriers to voting. So these people, when the vote came up for yes or no, are we going to tear down your house, couldn't make a vote to say, no, I don't want my house to be torn down. And those people and their children are still alive. They remember being in those homes, remember what was there before. And now the city is coming back is saying, okay, we're going to try to help right this wrong and we have these other organizations coming in who are taking ownership and putting this project together and then it became well is this going to become more of the same are we going to be displaced once more that so it was important to get those voices out for them to bring those residents in throughout the entire planning process all right gentlemen giles elliott thank you for coming in Oh, thank, thank you, you for having us, Nathan. Giles Morris is the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the news editor. You can find out more and read this, This really, truly, guys, it's an amazing piece of journalism uh, that Jordy Yeager and the whole team put together at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEJ Network, T-E-E-J.FM. WTJU and TEJ are both a service of the University of Virginia. Uh, opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that. They are opinions, not the endorsed positions of the university. It almost goes without saying, I hope, but I'm saying it anyway. Uh, the news in review for this week continues in just a moment. Well, it's been a week here in Virginia, as far as uh, state political news goes. The General Assembly is back in session, and this week, Governor Ralph Northam gave his State of the Commonwealth speech. We turn now to our regular correspondent on state news and politics, Peter Gulaska. He's a journalist based in the Richmond area. Uh, Peter, uh, take me through what's been happening here in the Commonwealth with that. Well, Governor Northam gave a a fairly progressive um, sort of uh, bucket list of stuff he wants to see done although this this particular General Assembly is still dominated by Republicans and is going to be a short one, so it's kind of questionable how much action will be done. But among his uh, points that he would like to see, he wants to give teachers pay raises. He wants uh, more gun control in the form of a limit on uh, restriction on having magazines for weapons having more than 10 bullets. He wants no-excuse absentee ballots, uh, which means that if you want an absentee ballot, you just have to file for one. You don't have to give a reason. 
and he also wants to uh, decriminalize marijuana. In addition to that, he wants tax breaks for lower income related to the Trump uh, federal tax changes last year. And um, there's also a movement about, I don't think he specifically mentioned it, to push the uh, uh, ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. I may have missed some, but those are some of the highlights. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I got the, the sense, looking at the transcript of this thing, that um, it was kind of aspirational. It's like, hey, we've got some money, we're flush, we're doing well, we can try to get along on some, some things we agree on and, and maybe push the envelope a little bit on some things we don't as much. But uh, here's a whole list. Let's do it. Um, mm-hmm. What um, What's the reception been? What are some of these things sort of stand a chance? Well, it's been kind of muted on the Republican side. Kirk Cox, um, a leader in the in legislature uh, who replaced Bill Howell, um, kind of said, well, there's some stuff we can work with here. Um, had this been, say, four, three, four years ago during the McAuliffe administration, who's a Democrat, you know, I'm sure you would have had a much stronger pushback from the Republicans, but there didn't seem to be that much. And part of that's probably because um, a lot of the, it is election year. All seats in the legislature are up for grabs uh, come November. And people are worried about Trump and the Trump effect um, because it has helped Democrats, obviously, in last year's elections. Sure. Before we get into the 2019 election preview, uh, which you know, I want to cover here in a moment, um, there is one uh, big topic that seems to have some bipartisan support here in Virginia. It's uh, to add tolls to I-81, Interstate 81, to uh, ostensibly help pay for uh, expansion of that road. Uh, what's, right. what's the issue? Well, it is kind of interesting because, um, you know, I-81 has... Uh, actually has more truck traffic, semi-trailer traffic, than I-95 does. And the reasons for it are really kind of strategic. I mean, I-81 doesn't really go through a lot of large cities the way I-95 does, and it really links the Northeast with, um, you know, burgeoning economic centers and markets in the South. And so it's really, it's notorious. I don't know, I, I'm, you're closer to it than I am, but I used to try ride on it very often. And it's just famous for wrecks. It's famous for backups and all kinds of problems because, you know, the road was really built in the 60s and it's only had hit or miss uh, renovations. So the idea would be to add tolls, I think five, maybe five cents a mile or something uh, that would help fund, uh, you know, helping, you know, redoing the roads or resurfacing them or, you know, correcting problems, things like that. Yeah, what I saw is that if you were to drive the entire length of I-81 from, from way up at the Maryland border all the way down to Tennessee, it would cost $24. But that they're also looking at having like a special commuter rate for people just doing local trips. Right. And you might have a nighttime rate. But, you know, you've got to look at it this way. I mean, um, you know, I've lived in the Midwest and I've lived in the Northeast. Like the Pennsylvania Turnpike is toll. A lot of the roads in the Midwest are toll roads. New Jersey Turnpike is a toll road. The Massachusetts uh, Turnpike or Thruway, whatever, is, is toll. So, I mean, this is not new. And the other problem is you kind of have a, you know, either or thing. You could either have tolls on I-81 or you could raise the uh, gasoline tax or fuel tax, diesel tax, whatever, which is something Virginians are always loath to do. Well, something's got to happen to fund it. I mean, the roads aren't going to pave themselves, right? No, they're not. And the thing is, is that uh, uh, some of the... the People whose businesses are on 81 have complained. I know Volvo, which is a um, fabrication plant down in southwest Virginia, uh, they've complained that this is going to hurt them. Uh, but then again, I mean, a lot of the people who use I-81 are not Virginians. They're from out of states, so the trucking companies, etc. And they're kind of getting a free ride, so to speak. <laughs> kind of, literally. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, 
Well, this one does enjoy some bipartisan support. Uh, there has been not all pats on the back on some other issues, the, the Democrats' agenda, some of which Governor Northam talked about, included uh, decriminalizing marijuana possession. That one that one seemed to have a pretty cool reception from some of the Republican comments that came yeah. after. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a number of states, I think it's nine, don't hold me to that, but I think nine states have decriminalized marijuana. I know D.C. has. Um, but, I mean, Virginia's still conservative, and... Um, you know, it's made significant strides away from social conservatism, but um, you know, it may not be time yet. And and that's you know, if the Democrats win legislative elections for both houses in the fall, then you might have a better chance at it next year. Well, let's turn toward the fall a little bit. Uh, uh, this assembly session, you know, these short assembly sessions leading up to state elections often have the feel of being kind of posturing for the fall. <laughs> Um, what's coming up? What should we look for going into the 2019 elections? Well, I think a lot of things are happening, and some people have written off this General Assembly session saying it's too short, and it's nothing's going to happen really significantly, but it is going to be a sounding board and a jumping-off place for issues for the election. And I think that if you look at Northam's uh, State of the Commonwealth speech, uh, you will see a lot of the talking points already being discussed, maybe more for, with an eye towards, uh, you know, the, the fall elections and next year's General Assembly. So that's what, you know, what we're going to see. And, and there's also the, uh, the Trump effect. I mean, it depends on um, what could really help Democrats is, is what happens with Trump's uh, government shutdown and the impasse between Congress and Trump over the wall. I mean, that's really, you know, Virginia has so much federal spending and jobs that it's uh, that it, it's going to be a big impact, and it depends on how it's resolved. Well, federal workers, right, are, are enough of a voting block in this state to actually matter if, it, if it's about, you know, them getting paid. Yeah, and I mean, I was reading, you know, there are a number of Coast Guard facilities in Virginia, and I read something in the paper this morning that um, the Coast Guard is advising its uh, members who are not getting paid to uh, hold yard sales. It may be babysit. Um, that's really kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, meanwhile, the, the Virginia Republican Party, um, so I want to talk about the gerrymandering case that has been kind of winding its way through the courts. Um, just to recap real quick of what this gerrymandering case is about and kind of now where things stand as of this week. Well, the news the news cap uh, from the week is that the Supreme Court uh, has decided against um, delaying redistricting, uh, court-order redistricting. Uh, which is a blow to the Republicans. To start start at the beginning, last summer, a federal panel uh, said that 11 districts, mostly in the Richmond area and Hampton Roads, were, you know, wrongly redistricted in 2011 by packing uh, African Americans into into some districts and to diminish their voting strength in others. And so it's been back and forth and back and forth. Um, it ended up. Um, in the hands of, a, of a, an outside adjudicator, I think it's from California, to decide, you know, how this will happen. And um, it, the, his re- redistricting, I think, is due around March. And that could change districts in a way that could favor the Democrats. And so the Republicans wanted to stall that, and uh, you know, with an eye, of course, to the November elections. And they've, they've, they've suffered a loss. I don't know how big a loss it is, but they've suffered a, a blow. Yeah. And so this means that then the, the redistricted plan coming out of this adjudicator would be in effect for the 2019 elections. Yeah, it would be. And that will, that will force some changes, but it's happened before. 
I know in the congressional districts, my district was uh, redistricted because uh, of the same for the same reason, racial packing. And um, that's one reason you got Abigail Spanberger over Dave Bratt, because Bratt lost uh, Hanover, his big, um, you know, in the 7th District, Congressional District, he lost uh, Hanover County, which is his big conservative base. And that really helped Spanberger. Mm-hmm. Well, at the Democrat. same time, yeah, with, with gerrymandering, though, you know, the, the big issue here, of course, is that, is that, you know, we look at Virginia and, and the Democrats have won every statewide race for 10 years. Yeah, um, I know. And but, it's, it's, just, it's just part of the change. I yeah. Mean, I'm not saying it's going to be complete, but they're, the pendulum is swinging. Right. All right, Peter. Well, uh, what's uh, what should we look for in the week ahead? Um, I don't know. More more updates, obviously, on the um, you know, what happens in the General Assembly. Um, Republicans have had will have had time to mull over Northam's agenda and see what their agenda is. There is some move, movement for bipartisan support on some of these issues, so that could be kind of interesting. That's something Northam brought up that you know we're not D.C. Um, we'll see. All right. Peter, thanks so much. Okay. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for local news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I want to let you know that WTJU is supported by UVA Health System, striving to advance medicine through research and dedicated to touching lives through patient-centered care. Online at uvahealth.com. We're also supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. My name is Nathan Moore. The theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marwain Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast network, TEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Hope you have a great week. <laughs>